A horrific terrorist attack kills more than 100 Iranians. Who is behind it? The lead starts right now. Four years to the day since the killing by the U.S. of Iran's commander, Hassam Soleimani, twin bombings today near his gravesite. The blasts just one day after an airstrike in Lebanon killed a senior leader of Hamas. New fears today that the Israel-Gaza conflict could erupt into a wider war. Plus, naming names beyond John Doe, that is, the document drop that could happen any moment and expose nearly 200 names with ties to dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. And in his first CNN interview as House Speaker, Mike Johnson will be here live from the Texas-Mexico border with a big Republican delegation in his face-off with President Biden on the border crisis. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. From Iran to Lebanon to the Red Sea and Gaza, death, chaos, and fear of an all-out multi-country conflict in the Middle East. In Iran, a suitcase bomb followed by a second blast at a top Iranian general's grave killed more than 100 people, according to Iranian state media. That general, Hassam Soleimani, was killed in a U.S. airstrike ordered by former President Trump four years ago today. Suleimani, whom the Pentagon says was actively planning attacks on U.S. service members and diplomats at the time and had been responsible for the deaths of hundreds of American troops in Iraq. We are also closely watching Iran-backed Hezbollah, a group the U.S. considers to be terrorist, as Hezbollah vows a, quote, limitless response in revenge for the assassination of a top Hamas leader in Beirut, much of which is under Hezbollah control. Although Israel has not acknowledged responsibility, a U.S. official confirms to CNN that Israel did order the strike against Hamas's number two as retaliation for the brutal October 7th attack. In the Red Sea, the Houthi-led Shia militias of Yemen, also backed by Iran, continue to fire missiles at commercial ships after U.S. helicopters sank three Houthi boats last week. In Gaza, meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians are facing winter in tents without basic essentials, including food, as far-right extremists in the government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu are publicly pushing the idea of forcing hundreds of thousands of Palestinians to leave Gaza for good. We'll tell you more about that and the U.S. pushback in the next hour. All of this as Hamas and other terrorists in Gaza continue to hold more than 100 hostages seized from Israel. Today, the IDF revealed that one of the hostages was already reported dead by his kibbutz, killed in a botched rescue attempt last month. Sahar Baruch was 25 years old. He had been a member of kibbutz Be'eri. We're going to start with all of this news with the deadly blast in Iran. CNN's international diplomatic editor Nick Robertson is in Israel. Nick, who might be behind this attack? There's a possibility of a number of different organizations. There could be uh, internal Iranian resistance movement. It could be Sunni extremists of the ISIS variety, although they tend to use suicide bombings. But both these groups have had a history in the past of targeting uh, and killing large groups of civilians. 
The bombs, as we know, uh, detonated about 20 minutes apart. The second bomb apparently in an effort to kill people who were going to help the wounded in the first bombing. The first bomb about 700 meters away from the area where uh, Qasem Soleimani's uh, mourners were gathering in his hometown. That was believed to have been in a suitcase, believed to have been remotely detonated. The other bomb about 0.6 of a mile, about a kilometer away from the shrine or the tomb there as well. Uh, not quite clear what was in that bomb or, or, or what it was disguised as, but it does seem to be sophisticated. The indications are not suicide bombing, so it tends to lean away from, from ISIS, but it really isn't clear. Uh, it has to be said, however, that Qasem Soleimani's replacement, the leader of the Quds Force at the IRGC, has really indicated pointing the finger towards Israel, United States. Of course, uh, United States saying not involved, and it has no reason to believe Israel involved either. All right, Nick Robertson, thanks so much. Meanwhile, in Lebanon, the United Nations force there is, quote, deeply concerned about a possible escalation in the Middle East in their region after a top Hamas leader was assassinated in Beirut, Lebanon, on Tuesday. A U.S. official confirming to CNN that Israel carried out the airstrike there that killed Salah al-Aruri, Hamas's number two. CNN's Nada Bashir is in Beirut for us. Nada, Hezbollah has vowed retaliation for any strike in Lebanon. Uh, what exactly are they saying? Well, there certainly has been a lot of anticipation around Hezbollah's response. We heard today from the Secretary General of Iran-backed Hezbollah, Hassan Masullah, uh, speaking today. He has previously warned that any attack on Lebanese soil would uh, trigger a response of similar severity on Israeli territory. And that warning was certainly reiterated today. Uh, Nasrallah saying that if Israel sought to wage a war on Lebanon, the response from Hezbollah would, in his words, be limitless. Take a listen. Until now, we've been acting on the front with calibrated moves, and that's why we're losing so many people. But if Israel wages a war on Lebanon, then our response will be limitless. We are not scared of war. And we are expecting to hear from Nasrallah once again on Friday, where there are indications the focus will be more on the situation in Lebanon, in particular in response to that strike we saw on Tuesday, which, as you mentioned, uh, saw the targeting and killing of Salah al-Aruri, someone who was the number two in Hamas's political bureau and consider, considered one of the founders of the Al-Qassam, Hamas's military wing. We've already heard from Hamas's political chief, Ismail Haniya, describing this as a cowardly assassination, in his words, placing the blame squarely on Israel. And while Israel hasn't outwardly uh, claimed responsibility nor denied responsibility, of course, a U.S. official has told CNN that the Biden administration understands that Israel was indeed behind the strike and that the Biden administration was not informed ahead of the strike. Now, of course, there is mounting concern around the potential for this significant development to see an escalation in the conflict more broadly in the region. We have, of course, seen those continued skirmishes on Lebanon's southern border between Hezbollah and the Israeli military from the outset of this war. We have today heard from the Lebanese government, Lebanon's foreign minister, saying that the Lebanese government more specifically does not want to see a war break out, that they want peace on their southern border and that they are trying to convince Hezbollah not to wage war with Israel. Meanwhile, we have also heard from the U.S. State Department, the spokesperson Matt Miller saying earlier today that the U.S. is no more concerned around the potential for this war to escalate as it has been from the outset of this war and responding more specifically to Nasrallah's comments.
statement saying that the U.S. believes it is not in Hezbollah's interest, nor is it in Israel's interest to see this war escalated more broadly in the region. Jake. All right, Nana Bashir in Beirut for us. Thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss Norman Rule. He ran the Iran desk at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence from 2008 to 2017. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Uh, first, after today's events, how likely do you think it is that this broader uh, regional uh, war in the Middle East uh, actually erupts, the ones that Western officials have been worried about for, for quite some time now? You know, good afternoon, Jake. Well, there are no strategic drivers for the main regional or external actors to ignite a regional war, if only because the goals of such a conflict would be unclear, and this would immediately disrupt their significant political and economic stability. At the same time, Iran and its proxies have multiple incentives to maintain and even increase the intensity and frequency of their current actions against Israel. The concern should be that any of these activities produces an event that requires retaliation or involvement by other actors that then build on each other, leading to the very conventional conflict we all wish to avoid. Let's turn to the blasts at Soleimani's grave in Iran. The U.S. State Department denies U.S. involvement. The U.S. also says Israel was likely not involved. Who do you guess might be behind it? Well, the available details of the attack suggest that the operation was not state-sponsored. State-sponsored operations historically avoid civilian casualties, and they focus on specific actors or facilities. Those behind this operation de demonstrated basic tradecraft. Uh, they lacked the capability to put the, the explosives close to the ceremony where official of senior officials would likely have been present, and they sought to inflict as many civilian casualties as possible. There are a number of candidates that come to mind. This does look in some ways like the Islamic State or other such groups which have conducted high-profile mass casualty attacks in the past. The initial details and the nature of the explosives also suggest that we have a massive security failure on our hands for those Iranian officials who really should have been on alert for an occasion that would have been attended by current and former senior Revolutionary Guard officials. Iran's uh, supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, says that whomever is responsible will, quote, be the target of a severe pounding and a deserving retribution. Um, but you've also you heard that they're blaming Israel and the United States, even though uh, on a basic level it doesn't make sense that, that Israel or the U.S. would be behind such a thing. What, what might that sort of retribution look like, assuming that it was a smaller, uh, not a state sponsor, but, but a, a terrorist organization of some sort? Rhetoric aside, it will take Tehran some days to investigate and assign responsibility for this terrorism. And Iran will certainly undertake retribution because this is one of the most significant, if not the most significant, terrorist attack in Iran since the 1979 revolution. If Tehran believes ISIS or a regional terrorist group is responsible, their response will range from and include arrests of uh, group supporters that identifies in Iran to missile attacks against terrorist bases or perhaps even a, a, a short-term her military incursion into Pakistan or Afghanistan. What purpose would ISIS have in carrying out such an attack? Would it just be because ISIS is Sunni and the Iranians are Shia? 
Well, ISIS, or specifically ISIS Khorasan, which is an offshoot branch of ISIS based in South Central Asia, primarily Afghanistan, seeks to destabilize and overthrow the existing governments of the region to establish an Islamic caliphate in the area of Afghanistan, Iran, and the southern areas of, of Central Asia. It's conducted attacks in Iran before, and it has uh, sought revenge for Iran's support of Bashar al-Assad, who has fought against ISIS supporters in Syria. You say there's an absence of recognized Western red lines when it comes to the Middle East. How can the U.S. go about sharpening those red lines? Well, policymakers are traditionally reluctant to set red lines. Big nations can't bluff, and failure to act on those red lines risks diminishing credibility and the deterrence with both adversaries and incurring political damage at home. Adversaries will also try and come as close as possible to the red lines to test our will. The problem is that unless adversaries recognize that red lines do exist, they'll be attempted to gradually normalize aggression and show those red lines are pink. If we tolerate this, the situation erodes as our credibility with partners and adversaries deteriorates. And then we, we risk an adversary overreaching, achieving what I would call a catastrophic success that compels us to respond in a way that ignites that broader conflict. A number of regional observers are concerned that the West is entering the situation with Iran and its proxies. Interesting. Norman Rule, thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Appreciate it. If you are still in holiday mode and not yet in a political mindset set, um, wait until you see the 2024 uh, calendar. It is decision time coming up. Coming up, the big promise we heard today from Nikki Haley, who, as you know, is not the Republican frontrunner. Here are the guarantees she made today that came with no caveat. Stay with us. The Iowa caucuses are only 12 days away, so let's cue the 2024 election music. Yes. Nice. Get closer and closer. CNN's town halls with Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are tomorrow night. Then our Iowa debate is one week from tonight. The Iowa caucuses, January 15th. The New Hampshire primary, just eight days after that. Then you got Nevada, South Carolina, Michigan coming raring to go over the horizon. Ron DeSantis today barnstorming Iowa. He's calling this campaign swing commit to caucus. Nikki Haley back in the live free or die state of New Hampshire for multiple events. Our CNN teams are everywhere the candidates are. Let's bring in uh, Eva McKend and, and uh, Jeff Zeleny. Eva, you're in New Hampshire. What is Ambassador Haley's message to the voters today? Well, Jake Haley will have her third and final stop today in Milford at this athletic center just behind me. And she's telling New Hampshire voters that she can win this Republican primary. She's telling them to disregard these polls that have former President Donald Trump way ahead in several states and that she's very much a viable candidate who can go on to win a general election. Take a listen. We are going to win. No doubt about it. Turn off your TV. These political pundits are trying to tell you what to do. And we've been on the ground and all the political pundits are going to have egg on their face when they're done with it. So some good news from her campaign today. She raised $24 million in the most recent quarter. She raised $11 million last quarter. So you can really see an illustration of that momentum uh, here and a suggestion that some of the uh, fundraisers, the donors that were supporting other campaigns, like former Vice President Mike Pence or Tim Scott, that they have shifted over those resources to Nikki Haley, Jake. And then let's go uh, to Iowa now. Jeff Zeleny's there. Uh, Jeff, Ron DeSantis is uh, in Iowa. He's previewing what he calls a sharp contrast between 
his vision and Ambassador Haley's vision. And a voter asked him, uh, why hasn't he gone directly after Donald Trump? Jake, that really is a question that hangs over the uh, final 12 days of the Republican contest here in Iowa. The voting begins here on January 15th, but uh, the Florida governor has been making stops across this state for weeks now. But it was a question earlier today in Waukee, Iowa, just outside Des Moines, when a voter said, I hear what you're doing on Haley, but why, don't, why are you going so soft on Donald Trump? This is what DeSantis said. I think the narrative is this. I think what the media wants is is they want Republican candidates to just kind of like smear him personally and kind of do that. That's just not how I roll. So we talked to the voter afterward. He was not on camera there, but he said, look, he thinks that uh, he needs to go stronger and draw a stronger contrast with former President Donald Trump. Jake, the reason that this is complicated for DeSantis, Haley and other candidates, uh, because it's a it's a delicate balancing act here. They're still trying to get some of those Trump voters, the ones who may be having second thoughts in the final week or so of this campaign to try and uh, persuade them to join their campaign. But they know that if they go too hard on those Trump voters, they might be turned off. But the reality to all of this is this is a race for second place. So DeSantis and Haley are going after one another. And Trump basically has had a free ride, at least in terms of advertising. An overwhelming amount of money has been spent on advertising against Haley and DeSantis and their assorted super PACs. Donald Trump has barely been touched, Jake. Yeah. Before we go, um, how do CNN's town halls and the debate that Dan Abash and I are going to be moderating one week from today, how, do the, how does it play into the strategies for DeSantis and Haley? Uh, Eva, you go first. Well, Jake, Haley really seems to be honing in on this electability argument, uh, no doubt a preview of what she might say in our town hall and during that debate. She's saying that more than her rivals, that she would be the best person to confront President Biden in a general election. And when you speak to voters that show up at her events, it, it, it does make sense because many of them supported President Trump in 2016. They then voted for President Biden in 2020 and are now looking for a new candidate to support. She says she is that candidate, Jake. Jeff, what about Governor DeSantis? Look, there are still some open-minded Republicans here, Jake. We met several of them this morning, and they uh, said they really are looking at this distinction between Haley and DeSantis. Now, they believe that he has a deeper uh, grasp of policy, so that is one thing that he has going for him. But the uh, town halls tomorrow and that debate next week is really one of the uh, final words, at least on the stage, where they will be together. So a lot of voters are sizing those two up. Sure, many have already decided they are supporting the former President Donald Trump. But for the Republicans who are not, and there are still many minds that are still um, you know, trying to process all this, that's why that debate next week is so important. So DeSantis intends to try and draw out some contrast, he believes, on policy, where he believes Haley is weak. So it'll be a substantive discussion, no question. Yes, there are 12 days left, Jake, but as you know as well as I do, the Iowa caucuses have a history of surprising and humbling people. So we'll see if that happens again this time. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Des Moines and Eva McKend in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thanks to both of you. Get in-depth perspective from two candidates in our back-to-back -back Republican presidential town halls tomorrow night. CNN's Caitlin Collins is going to moderate a conversation with Florida Governor DeSantis at 9 p.m. Eastern Thursday night. And then right after that at 10 o'clock, Aaron Burnett will host a town hall with former Ambassador Nikki Haley. Again, both are tomorrow night right here on CNN. Then next week, 
One week from today, I'm going to moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate with my colleague Dana Bash. That will be next Wednesday, January 10th, live from Des Moines, 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, Republican Mike Johnson live from Texas in his first CNN interview as Speaker of the House. His take on members of his party in the standoff with President Biden over the crisis at the border. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our national lead today, House Speaker Mike Johnson and more than 60 Republican lawmakers went to Eagle Pass, Texas, touring the U.S.-Mexico border. At one point, migrants could be seen crossing a river while Speaker Johnson, lawmakers, and the media stood on the bank. This comes as the Biden administration is blasting Republicans and Speaker Johnson for, quote, hamstringing border policy. I'm going to talk to Speaker Johnson in just a minute. But back on Capitol Hill, we should note the House Homeland Security Committee announced today that they will begin impeachment proceedings against Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez and Manu Raju have been tracking these developments for months. They're with me now. <clears throat> Pardon me. Priscilla, walk us through what happened during the Speaker's border visit. Well, Speaker Johnson, along with some of his Republican colleagues, were in one of the busiest areas of the U.S.-Mexico border. That's Eagle Pass, Texas. And they were surveying the area, visiting the facilities there. Now, this was an area that not long ago we saw lines of migrants waiting to be processed, really overwhelming the federal resources in that area. That's not what they saw today, even if they saw migrants crossing the river. The numbers have dropped considerably, according to senior administration officials, from in the thousands to less than 500 this week. Now, even with that, though, the administration has been contending with all-time high border crossings in December, over 225,000 unlawful crossings. And even if numbers drop, senior administration officials warn that migration ebbs and flows. Now, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorgas has credited a series of actions that the administration is taking to try to drive down those numbers. We have taken actions already to build lawful pathways, to deliver consequences and do what we can. We've promulgated regulations to do what we can within the confines of the law. But fundamentally, 
the law is the laws themselves must change. And this is something about which everyone agrees. And what he's referring to there is that there is record migration across the Western Hemisphere, and it is an outdated immigration system that is trying to absorb that flow or process that flow. And oftentimes, and over the last week, the U.S. has had to look to Mexico to get them to help with uh, driving down these numbers. Those talks, Jake, are going to continue this month. Manu, um, today bipartisan Senate negotiations are continuing. They're trying to come to a consensus on a border deal um, that would be added to the money for Ukraine and and Israel. Where, Where do things stand right now? Yeah, these talks have been going on for weeks. In fact, happening right now in the room next to me, Senator Kirsten Sinema's office, three senators along with the administration trying to hammer out any sort of immigration compromise. But they have struggled to find a deal because of divisions over how to deal with things such as asylum policy, more restrictions that Republicans in particular have been pushing, also dealing with providing the administration with more authority to expel migrants who have come across the southern border. Those issues simply have not been resolved. And also a big question here is how close will they go to the House GOP's plan, known as H.R. 2, a more restrictive plan that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is flatly rejecting and says is a non-starter with Senate Democrats. He reiterated that position today and said if House Republicans and Senate Republicans stick to that plan, he said that there will be no deal. When the House clings to H.R. 2 as the only solution, we're not going to get a deal. But I think if the Senate gets something done in a bipartisan way, it will put enormous pressure on the House to get something done as well, and not just to let these hard right people um, get up and say they're going to, the 30 of them, to dictate how the whole country should work. But, Jake, there are just still so many questions. Even if these three senators along with the administration can get a deal, which is still an open question, then getting the votes in the Senate, narrowly divided as it is, will be difficult, given they need 60 votes to do just that. And many Republicans that we have been speaking to over the last several days who are in the House say if it deviates from their position, H.R. 2, they simply will not accept it. So still so many questions here. In the meantime, Ukraine aid and Israel aid hanging in the balance because Republicans say the border must be be dealt with first before they greenlight more aid to Ukraine and Israel. All right, Manu Raju and Priscilla Alvarez, thanks so much. Uh, with me now from the U.S.-Mexico border is Republican House Speaker uh, Mike Johnson. Speaker Johnson, thanks so much for being here. Uh, welcome to the lead, uh, your first time as Speaker. Uh, so you're at the border today, and I presume uh, you're seeing a very dire situation, hardworking border agents, uh, you know, who, who can't do their jobs with what they have. They need more money. They need more colleagues, they need more beds for asylum seekers, they need more funding. Um, How come the House has not yet touched this $14 billion supplemental request from the Biden administration? The White House is hammering you on it. Why not take it up and, and, and help these individuals? Jake, good to be with you. Sorry it's taken so long to come on with you since I became speaker. Listen, this is a catastrophe down here. And what the White House is proposing is more money to process and allow more illegals into the country. We need to do the opposite of that. And this is, you don't need to take my word for it. Listen to the deputy chief of the U.S. Border Patrol who was with us last night. And he told us in his own words, he said, it's as if I'm at an open fire hydrant. I don't need more buckets 
to, to dump the water. He said, I need to turn the flow off. That's why we're here today, Jake. We had 64 House Republicans here representing 26 states and one U.S. territory, everybody from California to Maryland, Michigan to Florida, because every state in America is a border state right now. This catastrophe can come to an end if the Biden administration will do its job, and they've refused to do it. They're doing the opposite. So the $14 billion, um, there are, you're right, 1,600 asylum officers that would be part of that to speed up processing of asylum claims. That's what you're talking about. Um, but there also would be 1,300 more uh, border Patrol agents to work alongside the, the 20,200, uh, and also funding to hire 1,000 Custom and Border Prote Protection F officers with a focus on counter fentanyl. So it's not all, in fact, most of it is not related to uh, 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 processing asylum seekers. A, a lot of it has to do with what you're talking about. Jake, the president should come to the border. It, what, a, what an idea that would be. He should talk to the Border Patrol agents year, who are down here. I think he went last year, just FYI. Yeah, too. well, he went for a photo op. He should come and spend a couple of days like we have to be with the people here on the ground who are fighting this war on the border. That's effectively what it is. We have so many people, Jake, seven million people have come into the country since Biden uh, walked into the Oval Office. And that's a, a low estimate. Most people believe it may be twice that high. We have it, nearly two million gotaways that we know about, not to mention those who evaded capture. Over 300 uh, known terrorists apprehended at the border trying to come in. We don't know how many evaded uh, capture and, and uh, detection. They're in the country, potentially setting up terrorist cells everywhere. Fentanyl is the number one cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 49, flowing over the border like an open sewer. Human traffic is the number one business of the cartels here. Estimated, we were told today, Jake, one of the local sheriffs here, said that they believe that the cartels are making $32 million a week on trafficking human beings into the U.S. That's over $1.5 billion a year. Transnational criminal organizations, and the Biden administration seems to care nothing about it. Remember, they could they could issue executive orders and fix this overnight. You could uh, restate, reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy. You could stop the catch and release policy that the Biden administration right. assists upon. You could do some, some very important things, but they refuse to do it. So just, just one note on the terrorist thing. There aren't hundreds of known terrorists getting into the country. There are people uh, whose uh, identity have been flagged on a certain database. I just don't want people out there thinking that, you know, 200 members of Hamas have flown into the into the country and we don't even know about it. It's a, it's a little hey, bit more hey, complicated. Hey, Jake. I'm, hey, not, Jake. I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's not serious. I'm just saying these aren't necessarily terrorists. That's the terrorist watch list, Jake. Right. It takes quite a bit to make that list, okay? These are dangerous people who are coming into the country, and we have hardened criminals who are coming from all these countries around right. the world. They're opening prisons and sending them here. We saw it today, Jake. We know what's happening. We're talking to the people on the ground. So these are not Republican talking points. This is reality, and the White House needs to wake up to it. Right, now, and, and these criminals and individuals have been coming in for years, uh, Republican, Democratic, uh, administrations. Let's talk about H.R. 2, because that's the House Republican bill uh, that calls basically to resume um, uh, some of the Trump era policies, including uh, building the Trump era border wall. It would strongly increase the restrictions on who could apply for asylum. Um, critics of, of, of that say it would essentially gut the asylum process. It, it certainly would restrict it. That bill is not going to get 60 votes in the Senate. And whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, I leave to you. But it won't get 60 votes in the Senate. It won't get signed by a Democratic Senate, uh, Democratic president. Is there a compromise on border security that's being negotiated right now that you would allow to be voted on, even if a majority of House Republicans are not behind it? Something that would improve situation, the situation at the border, even if not to the point that you want it to be improved. 
Jake, the reason that we've insisted on the provisions of H.R. 2, which is the bill that we passed seven months ago that's been sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk collecting dust, the reason we've insisted upon that is because each of those provisions work together to secure the border. You can't, for example, just reform the asylum program and leave the, the broken parole process um, uh, un, uh, unrepaired. But then you would have a loophole that would do absolutely nothing. You can't just uh, reinstate Remain in Mexico. Even just that action would stem the flow estimated about 70 percent. But you have to also end catch and release. All these things work together. And so you can't just pick and choose from them from a menu and expect that you're going to solve the problem. I'll quote to you one of the sheriffs of Terrell County down here, a, a border county who has to deal with this crisis every day. He had lunch with us today and he told us, he said uh, he was a, before he became the sheriff, he worked for the uh, U.S. Border Patrol for 26 years. He said he had worked through four administrations who were doing great work, but it took less than six months for the Biden administration, in his uh, words, to unwind 100 years of progress that the U.S. Border Patrol had accomplished. Six months. These are policy choices that got us in this situation. And what we're demanding is that the policies change for the good of every single American citizen. But you, I guess my question is, is if you don't get H.R. 2, that's it. You're not willing to let's say let's say there was I mean, I've seen the White House and the Democrats in the Senate go in your direction on this issue more than I've ever seen Democrats uh, go in your direction. And I've been in this town for a little longer than you. I've seen President Bush try to do this. I've seen President Obama try to do this. Uh, and it always comes down to the House Republicans and what they're willing to accept you would turn down a compromise that was not 100% of HR2? Uh, Jake, I'm not going to answer hypotheticals because they've not sent us any, uh, any, any suggestion yet. There's, there's no uh, draft bill, but I would tell you, I don't care if they call it HR2. I do care about the provisions that will seal the border. I don't think now's the time to do comprehensive immigration reform because, to your point, it's very complicated. It's very complex to do. But we can seal the border. We could do it overnight. The president has the existing authority under existing federal law to do that, and he refuses to do it. Secretary Mayorkas has administered this. He's in charge of operational control of the border. And what we see here is absolute mayhem. It, 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 this is not a Republican or Democrat issue. Right. It affects every American and every citizen along here. That's, so, that's why, that's who they need to listen to. The argument is that there's only so much a president can do. Even Donald Trump could not seal the border. Even when the Remain in Mexico policy was in place in 2019, there was still a migrant crisis. There was still a crisis uh, at the border. And you might remember all those uh, TV ads that Donald Trump ran in 2018 about the caravan heading uh, into the United States. Uh, a lot of people say this needs to be solved by Congress. You're the guys that write the laws. You're the ones in charge of asylum. And yes, President Trump or President Biden could do X, Y, or Z, but it's really up to Congress. When, when President Trump entered the Oval Office, he he put in the Remain in Mexico policy. He ended the catch and release policy. He did the fundamental common sense things that stem the flow. It was down to a tiny fraction of what it is right now. Jake, 302,000 encounters at the border in December alone. It's the highest number in history. And, and it's going to continue because they're showing no, uh, no, no inclination at all to change it. They have rolled out the welcome mat. By the way, this is costing American taxpayers billions and billions of dollars to house and feed and educate 
and, and give health care to all these illegals. If you're from one of these poor countries, why would you not make the journey? You, you, why would you not submit your children to that dangerous journey? We don't know what's happening to them on the way. Yeah. This is a humanitarian crisis. We walked through the centers today, Jake. It would, it would make the average American citizen cry to see what's happening here, and it must stop. Right, which is why uh, some people are saying, why not pass the $14 billion supplemental uh, bill that, that President Biden has put before you to at least try to help with some of these that, issues? That won't solve that no, won't solve not, any of the problems solved. No. I just articulated. Right. No, that no, won't no. do a darn thing. Well, no. it, I'm, I'm sure the people in the Border Patrol agents that, that you're with think it might do something, at least in terms of making their job a little easier for the next month no, or so. No, actually they don't, they don't. They don't want the $14 billion? No, no. I just quoted to you the deputy chief of the U.S. Border Patrol, and he said he doesn't need more buckets. In other words, he doesn't need more personnel to handle the flow. He needs to turn the flow off. That's what we're talking about. But, this is not about sending more money down here. It's about yeah. changing the policy, and the White House seems not to understand that. Yeah, but I mean, even President Trump couldn't, couldn't turn the faucet off, right? I mean, I understand your point that he did more well, than, he, than Biden did. He but turned like, the flow down. Yeah, but it, like, it's not, it, he's, it's, a, it's the presidency, it's not... It's not a magician. But let me just ask you one quick question, sir, uh, while I have you. And I know you've been generous with your time. Um, some members of the House Freedom Caucus, a very important flank in the Republican Party, are talking about uh, refusing uh, to, to vote uh, f to keep the government open unless H.R. 2 is law. How seriously do you take those threats? Well, look, I don't think it's just the Freedom Caucus. I think you have most House Republicans who are responding to their constituents' concerns about this border. So you're, you're hearing some, um, some, some deep resolve. We said it here in the press conference here within the last hour that we must get this done as the top priority. So I'm, I'm not going to address hypotheticals about what the scenario is, but I will tell you that we are resolved on that. That and trying to cut non-defense discretionary spending because we passed an important and dangerous threshold today, $34 trillion in federal debt. We are in serious, serious uh, dire straits as a nation, and we have to address those things seriously, and we will. That's what you're hearing. All right. Well, we only talked about the border today because you're at the border. I hope you come back. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about, uh, and it's good to have you on. Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson, thanks so much. Thank you. Good to be with you. I have the panel seated. We're going to hear their take on what we just heard from Speaker Johnson about the border crisis. That's next. Moments ago, House Speaker Mike Johnson in his first CNN interview as Speaker told me that it is a catastrophe at the U.S. southern border. He's there right now. Let's jump into all this with our uh, panel. Uh, Doug, uh, your reaction uh, to what you heard from uh, Speaker Johnson. Yeah, one of the things that members of Congress do, Republican and Democrat, that's always smart, is they leave Washington, D.C., and they go to they have field hearings or site visits they go to see the problem. And what they do when they do that is they bring the media and they bring attention to that. So what did we see? We saw the speaker in front of the border. We saw people crossing as he was talking, as they were visiting. Those are important visuals. And it's part of how they're trying to separate themselves from uh, the policies of the Biden administration. You know, what the speaker says is almost less important than what we see. And I think that's something the Biden administration you know, realizes with this. It's why they're talking about this $14 billion so much. They see the same polling that we do, that Biden's numbers on the border are terrible and they're really bad with Hispanics as well, a key demographic that he needs to do very well with. I know that the position of the Biden White House, which you used to belong to, is that, boy, they've done more on the conservative side of things than any Democratic president uh, in, in recent history, keeping the COVID-era prescription uh, pr uh, uh, rules in for as long as they could, uh, in their view, uh, you know, tightening up asylum laws to the point that they're being sued. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, you know, with a, with a very important Latino base. Yeah. 
Well, I thought what was interesting about what the speaker said is you sort of you heard him multiple times walk through how we need a comprehensive solution. You heard him kind of run down a litany of things that needs to happen. And he said, you know, we can't we can't just solve for one part of this problem. We need a comprehensive solution. And yet then you heard him say we stand only on H.R. 2. Now, he wouldn't exactly commit, but, you know, he said H.R. 2 is the the solution. Right. Uh, You know, we're uninterested, essentially, in, in a compromise. That, I think, is actually ultimately a vulnerability for the Republicans on this, because I think at the end of the day, people do want to see the problem solved. They want to see Democrats and Republicans working together to get it done. You have Senate Democrats and Senate Republicans trying to hash that out now. You have the Biden administration saying we want to be part of this process. We want to solve uh, we want to solve some of these issues. And, you know, if if the House Republicans are just going to say, no, we will only support a bill that, you know, for example, would um, expand the amount of time that kids can be detained at the border. That actually opens up a vulnerability for them. People hated family separation. They hate an immigration process that they think feels cruel. And so I, I think there's some risk there uh, for the Republicans in just saying our way or the highway, and we're not going to try to help uh, find a real solution here. All right, Kate Benningfield, Doug Hines, uh, stick around. I've got more to talk to you about in the next hour. Coming up, how two planes ended up colliding in Japan and bursting into flames. A new transcript revealing communications just before that horrific crash. Stay with us. In our world lead, CNN is uncovering new information about that deadly collision between a passenger jet and a Coast Guard plane in Japan, specifically about lights on a runway in communication before the crash. CNN's Will Ripley is live for us in Tokyo. Will, what more are you learning? So, Jake, the key question that is unanswered, uh, and, and we're going to play some cockpit uh, recording audio for you in just a moment here, but the, the question is, why was this smaller Coast Guard plane, this Dash 8, uh, directly in the path of this much larger Airbus 350, uh, uh, Airbus uh, A350-900 that was coming down and landing on runway C at Haneda Airport. Essentially, the small plane kind of pulled right into the path at the last moment of this large aircraft. They hit each other, and then, of course, we saw the video with that explosion and the fireball. Uh, you know, the, the crash killed at least five Coast Guard crew members, and even though around 400 people safely got off that plane uh, in a matter of seconds, uh, still there are serious questions about what this small plane was doing, even though, as you're about to hear, uh, they actually were given an instruction by air traffic control at Haneda Airport here in Tokyo uh, to basically stay at the holding point, the point where the plane sits right before it's about to take off. But listen, because you're going to hear in this recording, uh, the commercial airliner was given clearance by the tower uh, to land. Take a look. So clearly there was some sort of a miscommunication uh, because this Coast Guard plane obviously didn't know uh, that it was about to pull right into the path uh, of a large incoming aircraft. And one theory uh, that we're looking into, uh, but have yet to confirm with the Japan Transport Ministry, is that there were actually some lights out on the runway. And the lights might have been those particular lights to signal where that plane was supposed to stop and and might explain why it basically put its nose out too far, putting it right in the path of danger, Jay. All right. Will Ripley in Tokyo for us. Thank you so much. We have some breaking news for you now. Donald Trump's lawyers have filed an appeal with the U.S. Supreme Court over that decision from the Colorado Supreme Court to keep Donald Trump off the ballot because they say he engaged in insurrection. That story's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. 
So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the White House is lambasting members of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet, specifically two right-wing extremists whom critics say are calling for the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. With U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Israel, now some in the Biden administration wonder if Netanyahu is going to have to soon choose between Biden or the extremists in his government. Plus, a federal appeals court is coming down on the Biden administration for trying to protect emergency abortions ahead. A closer look at abortion in America since Roe v. Wade was overturned. But leading this hour, we have some breaking news for you. A brand new court filing from Donald Trump. This time he is going to the U.S. Supreme Court to try to appeal the decision made by the Colorado Supreme Court to remove him from its 2024 ballot for engaging in insurrection. Let's get right to CNN's Paula Reed, who is here with me. Paula, I know you got a big stack of papers that you just printed out a second ago, but what can you tell us about this appeal? I move fast. So two weeks ago, the Colorado Supreme Court removed Trump from the ballot. Now that decision is on hold because previously the Republican Party of Colorado appealed this decision to the Supreme Court. So he will appear on the the Colorado Supreme Court to the United States, the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay. so that the Colorado decision is on hold. He's expected to appear on the primary ballot, but we need clarity for all 50 states in this country about this issue. Because it's been popping up elsewhere, Maine, maybe in Oregon, New Hampshire, Minnesota, Michigan. And while most states besides Maine and Colorado opted to keep him on the ballot, they left the door open to relitigate this. So the Supreme Court is under a lot of pressure to weigh in here. Trump has now officially filed his appeal. And here they're asking the court, this is a direct quote, did the Colorado Supreme Court err in ordering Trump excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot? Now, the Republican Party was a little more articulate in the questions that they posed. They want to know specifically, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to presidents? That's an important question because even within the state of Colorado, the courts were split there because the word does not appear. We need clarity on that. The Republican Party of Colorado also asked another important question, which is, okay, if this applies to presidents, who enforces it? Is it the states, which is what we're seeing play out across the country, or is there a role for Congress? That is not one of the questions uh, presented explicitly in this appeal, but it's baked in. We need clarity from the Supreme Court. Now, we could get an answer at any time about whether the Supreme Court wants to take up this issue, but they now have two separate appeals on this case, one from the Republican Party of Colorado, one directly from the Trump legal team to take up this case, possibly hear oral arguments and hopefully offer some clarity to the country. This is what they do, Jake. They settle disputes among the states and they clarify constitutional controversies. Meanwhile, there is also this issue with Jack Smith, the special counsel, uh, trying to try uh, President Trump for what he did on January 6th. And the Trump people have been arguing, hey, I have presidential immunity for anything I did as president. Yeah. And uh, Jack Smith says no and has asked the Supreme Court to weigh in. They said no. Uh, But Trump has also filed another court filing on this presidential immunity claim. 
So our theme of 2024, Jake, is going to be all roads lead to the Supreme Court. This yes. is likely an issue, but the Supreme Court has opted not to weigh in here. Instead, next Tuesday, there are oral arguments on this issue. And late last night, the Trump team filed a brief reiterating the arguments they have made. They insist that for 234 years, presidents have not been prosecuted for the actions that they have taken in office. We know a lower court has already held that, look, what we're talking about here was outside the scope of your official duty. And we saw the, saw the special counsel in the past few days say, Look, if we allow presidents absolute immunity for anything you do while you are president, we know that people are going to undertake criminal, you know, criminal activity to stay in office. We can't have that. Now, the entire election subversion case. That's a good argument, case, by the way. I mean, it is pretty good. You know, every, every once in a while they come up with something. But look, even, even former members of Trump's legal team have said the immunity argument, it's not a winner. What they're trying to do here is delay. And so far, they're successful. This entire case is on hold until this immunity question is resolved. By the appeals court by the, whatever the final court is. If okay. the Supreme Court wants to take this up, they've already passed once. They were asked to just interject, answer the questions. But they said, no, we're not going to do yeah, it. They let said, it, no, we're going to play out in the Let in the it lower play court. out. Yeah. We're not going to step in. I mean, that's notable. Jack Smith was really hoping they would step in. They opted not to because Jack Smith wants to put this trial on before the 2024 election. We're going to have oral arguments on Tuesday. They're moving very quickly. Then the Supreme Court can weigh in uh, however they want. They can also opt not to. And then we need to look at the calendar and figure out does Jack Smith have enough time to put this case on before the 2024 election? Timing is everything here, Jake. With the Supreme Court appeal on ballot eligibility, it's surprising it took Trump two weeks because we need clarity as soon as possible. On this question of immunity, timing is of the essence because it's really a question of will you be tried before or after the election? We don't know. It's unlikely he's going to win on immunity. The bigger question is, will you see the inside of a federal courtroom before the election? One of his former lawyers put it at about 50-50. All right, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Let's talk about this now with former lawyer for Trump, Tim Parlatori. Uh, Tim, so good to see you. Happy New Year. Why do you think, first of all, it, this is maybe kind of like a, an insidery question, but it is something that is stumping all of us. Why did it take Trump's legal team, do you think, so long to appeal that Colorado Supreme Court decision to ban him from the ballot? Because, frankly, I, I thought that they were going to move more quickly. You know, I would have expected them to move more quickly, too. I don't have any specific knowledge other than, um, yeah, as you know, one of the reasons why I left that team is uh, interference you know, from other people. Uh, so I could imagine that, you know, this was definitely litigation by committee of going back and forth with drafts and I mean, you know, Dave Warrington, who filed the brief, is a very smart lawyer. I would expect him to do good work and do it fast. But if he's being interfered with by others, then that, that would delay it. Who are, the, who are the others that interfere? Uh, well, in my experience, it was uh, people related to the campaign, like Boris. Boris, Boris Epstein. Epstein, yeah. Do you think the U.S. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court is going to take this up? I do. Uh, you know, it's... It's a situation where you have a significant split between the states of an issue that really does have vital national importance as to, you know, whether, you know, people in different states are going to be given the same choice as to who they're allowed to vote for for president. So I think that, you know, if there is ever a case that falls squarely within the mission of the Supreme Court to solve these these issues, um, you know, this is it. So I can't imagine them rejecting it. Well, God forbid anybody badmouth the founding fathers, but I did read the relevant section of the U.S. Constitution, and it doesn't say how it gets decided whether or not an individual engaged in insurrection. 
Correct. In the Section 3, it doesn't, it's pretty silent as to that. Section 5, it says that Congress shall be the one to enforce this. And, you know, the way that I've looked at that, Congress has done two separate things to enforce this. They've passed 18 U.S.C. Uh, 2383, which is the insurrection ban. Uh, that specific statute does provide for a prison sentence. It also provides for permanent barring from public office. It actually expands on who it applies to beyond what the 14th Amendment has, but it requires a federal criminal proceeding. Uh, the other thing that Congress can do and that they have done in this case is they can, imply, they can apply impeachment proceedings. You know, President Trump was impeached for insurrection. And in fact, Nancy Pelosi was very open at the time that the reason why he needed to be impeached and tried after leaving office was to keep him off the ballot in 2024. He was acquitted. So that's another thing that Colorado is going to have to overcome is that Congress has already actually taken action on this. This uh, provision of the U.S. Constitution has been, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you're the lawyer, not me, but it has been used before, uh, I, I think, against public officials uh, that engaged uh, in, the, in the Civil War, uh, I believe, on the, on the sure. losing side. But I don't think that they had been, had they been federally prosecuted or no? They had not. And so this is, um, you know, th this is actually part of the Constitution that was not passed by the Founding Fathers. It was passed in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, right. specifically to target former Confederate officers. And, you know, really, it's something that my understanding of it is it was never really litigated. The former Confederate officers just recognized their ineligibility. And they really, the proceeding that they were going for was a separate part in there that allows for a majority of both houses, uh, or actually I think it's a two-thirds majority of both houses, to, um, to relieve somebody of disability and allow them to run again uh, if, if they've been deemed to be properly rehabilitated from their former insurrectionist ways. I was using so I, but founding I fathers ever been broadly. Litigated in this way. Yeah, I appreciate yes, absolutely. it. Absolutely. Tim Parlatori, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. And we are back with our politics lead on the eve of CNN's presidential town halls with Governor Ron DeSantis and Ambassador Nikki Haley. Kate Bedingfield and Doug High are back to talk about presidential politics. And we should remind our viewers that there is a Democrat in the race, too. Uh, President Biden uh, and so Saturday is the third anniversary of the January 6th uh, riots on the Capitol, insurrection, whatever you want to call it. President Biden plans a speech near Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Valley Forge, a historic revolutionary war site to warn uh, the public that democracy itself is on the ballot. Kate, am I cynical for, for thinking that the message is, okay, you don't like the job I'm doing and you think I'm way too old to be president, but democracy is on the ballot. You got to like that. Yes, that is exceedingly, that's an exceedingly that's, cynical. That is cynical. That okay, is a I'm, cynical take. I, I, I hate to break it. You can be cynical and accurate at the same time, I, I but they're not to, mutually exclusive. I hate to break it to you. That is a very cynical take. Okay. Those words have not come out of Joe Biden's mouth. Um, but it is true that democracy as an existential issue has been a motivator in the past two elections. We have seen time and again that people come out to the polls to vote when they believe that democracy is at risk, it is a threat. There is dubiousness from the chattering class, maybe perhaps even from you, Jake Tapper, I don't remember. I'm a big but supporter of democracy. In, in, in 2020, you know that. I do know that. In 2022, about whether that was going to be effective and that was going to actually motivate voters to come out uh, in the midterms, and it did. So I think what you're going to see from Biden, I would imagine, uh, is a real kind of 
doubling down and tripling down on the idea that you have to show up, uh, you have to cast your vote your, that to make your vote count, and that if we are complacent or we sort of allow uh, uh, Trump and you know, who will presumably be the nominee mm -hmm. uh, and the Republicans to at the margins to take away uh, our sense of, of democracy, that that is foundational to everything. So I would imagine he will really be laying out the existential and urgent case here. And let me also say, to contradict what I just said cynically, <laughs> it's not a bad argument because Donald Trump has shown that uh, he is willing to go to extreme lengths to hold on to power even after he loses an election. Well, no, it's, it's not a bad argument. Let's be clear. Joe Biden won fair and square the first time uh, in, in 2020. Donald Trump won fair and square in 2016 as well. Um, but this has been a message that Biden's gone to before, and, and certainly he used it, I think, effectively in, in 2020. There's a resonance for independent voters on that. But also, I think if we dial back and, and dial into the polling a little bit and go into the crosstabs where we see that there are concerns about the state of our democracy, that does include Republicans who feel wrongly uh, that the that the vote was stolen from Donald Trump or that there was significant fraud right. which didn't exist. Those voter attitudes are very real, and I hear it every time I leave Washington, D.C. Yeah. Who is this aimed at? Is it aimed at motivating the base and also winning back independence? A, a little bit of both. I would say this is definitely an argument that lands with independent voters, though. This is uh, an argument that it energizes Democrats. To your point, Doug, it in some ways energizes Republicans too, but it energizes Democrats. But it really is an argument that we saw time and again in, in 2020 appeals to moderates, appeals to independent voters, appeals to those suburban voters who are maybe not dialed into politics every day, but who look up and say, no, I don't want to live in a country where you know, the winner and the loser can't agree on who won and lost, and we can't have a, a peaceful transfer of power. So it's a long way of saying, yes, it is an argument that really appeals to, uh, to independent and moderate voters. All right, Kate and Doug, thanks to have Thank thanks you. to coming back. Uh, coming up next, strong reaction from the White House today on two far-right extremists who are members of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's cabinet. And what pressure is that putting on Netanyahu? Stay with us. In our health lead now, just yesterday, a federal appeals court ruled that doctors in Texas are not required to perform emergency abortions, even in life-threatening situations, despite the Biden administration arguing that federal guidance supersedes state law. This follows new research published yesterday by the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA, that uncertainty over access to abortion care has led to thousands of women who are not pregnant requesting abortion medications such as mifepristone in case they need it in the future. This also includes efforts from a number of Democratic-led states, including New York and California and Massachusetts, that are trying to stockpile the abortion medications. CNN's Jessica Schneider examines now how the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade continues to impact and complicate abortion policies across the United States. Anger, fear, and confusion have gripped parts of the country in the 18 months since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. A woman who was hell-bent to have an abortion is going to have an abortion despite what this legislature says. While state lawmakers are passing a patchwork of anti-abortion laws that are often difficult to decipher, women and doctors are caught in the crosshairs. It's very scary for physicians to have a patient in front of you, that you know exactly what they need, you know how to treat them, and yet you're wondering, well, who's going to, who do I have to check with? 
Who's going to second guess me? Dr. Caitlin Bernard performed an abortion for a 10-year-old rape victim who traveled from Ohio to Indiana for the procedure just days after Roe was overturned. At the time, Indiana allowed abortions up to 22 weeks. Now the state has nearly banned them completely. Bernard was not criminally charged, but she sat at the center of a firestorm for performing the abortion and then talking to reporters about it. We are in crisis. The situation was much more dire last month in Texas. We have the attorney general second guessing her doctor's judgment and saying, no, no, we don't think Kate is sick enough. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton threatened to criminally charge Kate Cox's doctors if they gave her an abortion at 20 weeks. Her fetus was diagnosed with a rare and deadly genetic condition called trisomy 18, and doctors determined Cox's life and future fertility were at risk if she continued with the pregnancy. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl. Cox's doctors said Texas law, which allows for abortions if there's risk of death or substantial impairment to the mother, was too vague to risk performing the abortion. The doctors faced the potential of decades in prison, up to $100,000 in fines, and loss of their medical license. After the Texas State Supreme Court ruled against Cox, she traveled out of state to get an abortion. Unable to travel, another woman, Deborah Dorbert, was forced to carry her baby who had no kidneys to term. I continue to feel this baby move and knowing that I'm going to give birth and watch my child pass. Only to watch him die as doctors had predicted. She lives in Florida, which bans nearly all abortions after 15 weeks. We and other organizations have a number of lawsuits um, pending right now challenging different abortion bans and abortion restrictions. Late last month, a woman in Kentucky sued her state for the right to an immediate abortion. Kentucky bans the procedure. It's one of 14 states where abortion is outlawed. And a group of women in Texas are awaiting a ruling from the state's Supreme Court after they sued, saying Texas is narrow exceptions harm women facing difficult pregnancies. The barbaric restrictions our lawmakers have passed are having real-life implications on real people. Abortion access is also at risk for women who live in states that allow the procedure. The Supreme Court is set to hear arguments this year from groups urging more restrictions on the abortion drug mifepristone. That's a drug used in the majority of abortions nationwide. And if the Supreme Court allows those restrictions to take effect, it would mean that the abortion pill would be less available even in states that fully allow the procedure. But either way, abortion is set to be a major issue in the 2024 election. Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much for that report. We are standing by for the first release of unsealed court documents in the Jeffrey Epstein case, plus Benjamin Netanyahu's growing diplomatic dilemma. That's next. Our world lead now, the White House this afternoon offered a blistering condemnation of statements by two members of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's governing coalition. Both Israeli Minister of National Security Itamar Ben-Gavir and Israeli Finance Minister Bezalel Smotrich in recent days have publicly pushed the idea of forcing Palestinians to leave Gaza forever. Smotrich's, Smotrich said this on Israel Army Radio, quote, we will not allow a situation in which 2 million people live there, meaning Palestinians. If there are 100,000 to 200,000 Arabs living in Gaza, the discussion about the day after the war will be completely different. I'm for completely changing the reality in Gaza, having a conversation about settlements, Israeli settlements, in the Gaza Strip. We'll need to rule there for a long 
time. A proposition that the leader of the Reform Jewish movement in the United States, Rabbi Rick Jacobs, called ethnic cleansing and what the U.S. State Department called inflammatory and irresponsible. At today's White House briefing, here is what National Security Council spokesman John Kirby had to say. That statement does speak for the United States government and for this administration in terms of our uh, complete refusal and rebuke of any forced displacement outside of Gaza of any Palestinians. We have made that clear to our Israeli counterparts in private sessions, certainly have made that publicly, and that's not going to change. Kirby standing by the statement from the State Department there, condemning what Smotrich and, and Ben Gavir have said. Prime Minister Netanyahu, however, has not condemned the two ministers for their incendiary comments. As we have covered before, Ben Gavir and Smotrich are two extremist, anti-Arab bigots. Each of them controls seven seats in the Israeli parliament or Knesset, where Netanyahu's government has 64 seats out of 120. So Netanyahu crosses those two at the risk of his own survival as prime minister. Since the October 7th attacks by Hamas, Ben Gavir, until recent, who, who until recently had a portrait in his living room of a murderous Jewish terrorist, he's been making life even more difficult for Arab and Muslim citizens of Israel, handing out guns to Jewish citizen militias. Smotrich currently has broad powers over civilian issues in the West Bank, where more than 300, 300 Palestinians have been killed in clashes with Israelis, many of them extremist settlers, just since October 7th. After Netanyahu formed his government just over a year ago, I asked him about these two extremists in his government. A Smoltrich just called himself a fascist homophobe. He uh, suggested same-sex marriages like incest. The former deputy uh, director of Shin Bet uh, said he was a Jewish terrorist, that he tried, to, he tried to stage an event when the Gaza pullout was going on. And the other day he was saying that the, he was putting out these horrible conspiracy theories, you must have seen this, about the Shin Bet and the assassination of Rabin. I mean, these seem like rather extreme individuals. Yeah, well, a lot of people say a lot of things when they're not in power, and they sort of temper themselves when they get into power. Uh, and that's certainly the, the case here. Perhaps that was wishful thinking, because neither Ben Gavir nor Smotrich has tempered themselves at all. Critics accuse both Ben Gavir and Smotrich of fomenting settler violence against innocent Palestinians in the West Bank. And matters are currently getting worse, with West Bank security officials not even being paid. Now, this is because of what are called clearance revenues. These are the import and export taxes that the Israeli government collects for the Palestinian Authority and give to the Palestinian Authority. And the PA, the Palestinian Authority's budget, relies on this money. After October 7th, Smotrich, who is the finance minister of Israel, has refused to release these funds to the PA, putting the Palestinian government there at very real risk of economic collapse and frankly, waving a flame of further instability near the tinderbox that is the West Bank under brutal Israeli occupation. In the last few days, President Biden personally has seen that he needs to get involved to negotiate this, to keep the Palestinian Authority as a viable alternative to Hamas, including a Biden-Netanyahu phone call. Now, while some Biden administration sources believe that Biden and Secretary of State Antony Blinken and others can keep pushing and ultimately get what they need from the Netanyahu administration, others say the tensions are building behind the scenes so much they believe President Biden is going to have to ultimately decide whether he has faith 
that the Netanyahu government, that this coalition government is one that he can ultimately do business, business with, not just for the current war, but for what is called the day after in Israel, what happens after the war is over. But while President Biden is focused on a Gaza free from both Hamas and IDF control, that is not what you hear from Israel's leaders. Ben Gavir told his party this week that the war, quote, is an opportunity to develop a project to encourage Gaza's residents to emigrate to countries around the world. Again, what critics call ethnic cleansing. His response to the State Department criticizing him was to say Israel is, quote, not another star in the American flag. And he reiterated his desire for, quote, the migration of hundreds of thousands from Gaza, unquote. A Biden administration official said to me, at some point, Netanyahu is going to have to choose between governing in a way that pleases Ben Gavir and Smotrich or governing in a way that pleases President Biden and the Biden administration. Though it is possible, of course, that Netanyahu has already chosen. Let's bring in CNN national security analyst Beth Sanner, also former deputy director of national intelligence. Um, what do you make of it? Do you think Netanyahu has already ultimately decided, you know what? I'm with Ben Gavir and Smotrich and Biden, you can take a hike. Or do you think this is still uh, a delicate act, balancing act that he's, he, has, he hasn't fully decided yet? I think Netanyahu has decided that Netanyahu is for Netanyahu. Right, which means siding which with means, those two. Which means right now uh, siding with those two. And it's hard to see how that turns out somehow differently. I mean, right now, um, he can govern without these two. As long as the war cabinet is in place. Right, the war cabinet put into place after October 7th, and, yeah. and those two don't get a vote in that. Exactly. Right. But once that disbands, then he is back to relying on these two parties and these two individuals to stay in power. And why does he need that? He needs that for himself because he still has these corruption trials going on. So it's not just a matter of like pride and wanting to stay in power. He actually has kind of a Trump thing going on, except right. more advanced, right? So, you know, so there's real skin in the you game here. You mean prison here. game, actual prison I mean, time, yes, yeah. exactly. So not just power, but like freedom. So I also want to get your take on, on the deadly explosions in Iran mm. uh, today on the fourth anniversary of Iranian General Soleimani's um, death in that U.S. airstrike, uh, the drone attack that President Trump ordered. Yeah. Um, a senior U.S. official said it looks, quote, like a terror attack, what mm -hmm. happened. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the type of thing we have seen ISIS do in the past. Do you agree? I do. And I think that ISIS, um, ISIS Khorasan, the, the local, the, the, you know, the South Asian version of ISIS, has a reason to go after Soleimani because Soleimani was, you know, had gone after ISIS Khorasan and, and other of these militant leaders, particularly in, in Syria, but also further abroad and inside Iran. And so there's a, there's a history there. So, you but know, Soleimani's already dead. Why did, why kill all the worshipers? Just because there might've been some Iranian um, Because of all the, the, all the IRGC folks were yeah. there too. So okay. it, it's symbolic. Um, it's against Iran. It's against Shia, right? Because right. ISIS is a Sunni group. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And you don't see, you don't see countries like Israel doing this kind of bombing where you just blow up a bunch of people. Um, it's much more targeted. Uh, the, the, uh, the, in 2020, Iran's ambassador to the U.S., I'm, to the, I'm sorry, to the, to the U.N., yeah. told CNN that the U.S. strike on Soleimani was, quote, tantamount to opening a war. Mm -hmm. um, 
do you think that's what we're seeing now in any way with all these Iranian yeah. proxies yeah. Well, ramping up violence? You have Hamas mm -hmm. killed more than 50 Americans when they attacked Israel, and they have, I think, like seven American hostages still. Right. Uh, not to mention Hezbollah. Uh, doing what they're doing against Israel in the north, not to mention the Houthis firing upon mm -hmm. um, ships. Um, do you think that's what this is? Not to mention um, assassination planning plots against the U.S. officials who are behind the strike that continue, according to the FBI, to be ongoing. So, you know, Iran has never given up on retaliating, but I would say that it also is just a product of like just where Iran is, that, that their goals haven't changed with or without Soleimani. So you can ask like, well, was Soleimani, was the Soleimani hit successful? And I think this is a question that we could ask ourselves. I don't know the answer to that. All I know is that what I'm seeing in the Middle East right now suggests that they still have the will and the capacity to cause a lot of Harm. Although it is interesting, after October 7th, when Donald Trump spoke publicly and, and, and criticized Israel uh, in, in its darkest week uh, ever, uh, one of the things he said about Netanyahu was he, he blasted Netanyahu for not participating in the Suleimani strike. That was interesting. And weird. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you about something else because um, there, there's been some investigative journalism suggesting uh, that... Um, reporters on the ground have not been able to verify that the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza, mm -hmm. that the U.S. and Israel both said there was a Hamas command and control center either underneath it or there. Right. Uh, there have been uh, Washington Post and other reports saying that they don't see any evidence of it. The U.S. just reinforced it, the intelligence assessment, saying Hamas used the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza's command center, used it to store weapons and hostages. Mm -hmm. Um, they still haven't produced any evidence of it. They just reiterated their previous belief mm -hmm. that it was their primary command hub. Uh, we have seen detailed IDF videos of the hospital complex and the tunnels underneath. Right. Um, what do you make of this all? So, I mean, what the U.S. intelligence released, the declassification says is that they were there, but then they withdrew before the Israelis went in. Mm. So did we know that at the time? That they had withdrawn? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a key question for... Um, the South African case in the ICC. Uh, the question is, if did we know at the time that they had already withdrawn and that, that we were, you know, the Israelis were kind of going in after the fact, or were they going in after a hot target where they thought they would be rescuing hostages? I think they thought the latter, but the U.S. intelligence saying that they seemed to have withdrawn before they went in, and that's how I read it. I hope I, I don't know. I hope I'm not getting that wrong, Jake. Mm -hmm. But that's what I think I read. Um, that would raise some questions for me. I mean, you know, look, intelligence is tough business. We don't get a blueprint with, right. you know, this is how it is. There's there is a lot of interpretation, and um, these kinds of sources are never going to be definitive. So you have to make judgments. Yeah, it's also worth noting that nobody doubts that there were tunnels underneath the hospital, and okay. nobody doubts that Hamas has used that hospital as a command center. And others. Yeah, and and uh, a lot of the international outcry doesn't seem to target the fact that yes. Hamas is using a hospital as a command center for yeah. its terrorist activities. Yeah. Illegal under yeah. all international laws and rules. Beth Sander, always good to have you on. Thank you so much. Little by little, we expect to see what was inside the newly unsealed documents related to conv convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, nearly 200 names, including some of his accusers, possibly some prominent business people, politicians, more. Why these details are coming out now, that's next.
In the law and justice lead, who is connected to dead convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein? Details from newly unsealed documents may be released at any moment. Let's get right to CNN's Kara Scanella in New York in touch with sources. Kara, reporters everywhere have been refreshing court pages looking for any hint as to what is in these documents and when they will be made public. What are you learning? Well, Jake, we are among them. We are looking, uh, refreshing this court docket, waiting for these documents to be unsealed. This is all part of a lawsuit brought by uh, Epstein accuser Virginia Roberts Dufresne. She sued Epstein's former girlfriend and his longtime girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, who was convicted as participating and helping him uh, with running a sex trafficking operation involving minors. So this lawsuit against Maxwell has resulted in numerous depositions taken by other accusers of Epstein in it over time time, as well as, you know, subpoenas for documents, records and things from other people. Now, Roberts has been one of the most outspoken accusers of Epstein. She has said that she was his sex slave and was forced to have sex with several famous politicians, as well as Prince Andrew. Now, she had reached a settlement with the prince and he'd agreed to pay a substantial amount of money to a charity. Uh, so a lot of this information has already been in the public domain, either because people have gone public with their stories or it came out during Maxwell's criminal trial. And that's one of the reasons why the judge has agreed to the request by news organizations to release all the material that has been under seal with these names redacted, saying that in many instances it's already public, and in others instances the reference of someone's name is not in a salacious way. So we're going to be parsing through this to see what new information we learn uh, about some of these bold-faced names that are likely to be included in this, uh, and we're expecting this to come on a rolling basis, so we're expecting to get some of these documents hopefully in the next a couple of minutes, maybe the next hour or so, and then we'll continue to come through it as it comes in. Jake. All right, Karis Canell, thanks so much. New York Jets quarterback Aaron Rodgers is facing intense and frankly well-deserved criticism over comments he made on ESPN's The Pat McAfee Show, in which Rodgers made false allegations about accused sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein and a popular late-night comedian who has zero connections to Jeffrey Epstein. Take a listen. A lot of people, including Jimmy Kimmel, are really hoping that doesn't happen. False, defamatory, wildly irresponsible, and not funny if, he, if Rogers was trying to be funny. This is child sex trafficking we're talking about. That's not funny. Kimmel responded to Rogers on Twitter, posting, quote, Dear asshole, spelled with two A's like Aaron, for the record, I've not met, flown with, visited, or had any contact whatsoever with Epstein, nor will you find my name on any list. Your reckless words put my family in danger. Keep it up, and we'll debate the facts further in court. Now, Pat McAfee has apologized for Aaron Rodgers' comments on his program. I should note CNN has reached out to a representative for Rodgers, and one for ESPN, and one for ABC. They've all declined to comment. But senior writer for Deadspin Julie DeCaro interpreted the fallout like this, quote, it's time for ESPN to put an end to Pat McAfee's Aaron Rodgers disaster. How many more lies must the New York Jets quarterback spew before someone pulls the plug? And Julie DeCaro joins us now. Julie, um, frankly, just the latest example of Aaron Rodgers using his platform to spread misleading and false information. Yeah, you're right, Jake. I, as you know, Aaron Rodgers has been out hurt all year. He, you know, made it one snap into the season. Um, and frankly, it seems like he's been bored and a little jealous of maybe the attention that other athletes are getting. He goes after Travis Kelsey all the time. So when he makes these appearances weekly on Pat McAfee's show, which McAfee has admitted he is paying Aaron Rodgers to make, 
Um, he's been using it as a platform to attack Travis Kelsey, who's in a Pfizer commercial about getting vaccinated. He's gone after uh, Dr. Fauci. He's hyped up uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and his anti-vax stance. He you know, basically is using it as a platform for, to spread the misinformation that, that he believes. And ESPN has done nothing about it so far. Well, what's weird about this, I mean, this to joke, even if I assume he was trying to joke because... Uh, you know, but it's so wildly irresponsible. There are lunatics out there who believe this kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, Kimmel's right when he says he's putting his family at risk. What obligation does ESPN have to shut down this type of speculation? And by the way, I think Disney owns both ESPN and ABC, yeah. where Jimmy Kimmel is their late night star. Why, like, why is yeah. Disney even allowing this to happen? That's a great question. And I'd be really interested to know what went on behind the scenes last night and this morning between ESPN and Disney um, and Pat McAfee, because like you said, yeah, I mean, Pat McAfee is a big show for ESPN. They gave him $85 million for a five-year deal, but I don't think he even touches what Jimmy Kimmel is. And, um, you know, McAfee came out today and he apologized and said he apologized for his role in it. But Jimmy Kimmel's right. This kind of thing does put people in danger. I mean, within moments, of Roger saying this yesterday on Pat McAfee's show, you could see all these people on Twitter running wild saying that, you know, Jimmy Kimmel's on Epstein's list. You just heard Aaron Rodgers say it. I saw people today saying he was on the flight list that had already been released about who's flown on Epstein's plane. Um, you know, people believe what Aaron Rodgers says. And unfortunately, I, I think we're in a case where, you know, that has happened uh, across a lot of media where there's more money in letting the conspiracy theorists rant and rave and um, nothing much is done to correct them. I mean, I went to journalism school and I was taught that, you know, you need to have not only a source, but a source in corroboration before you can publish something. And that's simply not the case anymore. No, it's crazy. I mean, I've seen on social media all these fake lists. Obviously, nothing has been released. Yeah. Um, we have been covering this and we will continue to cover it. And when those lists come out, we'll certainly uh, we'll certainly cover it. Um, you know, would you be surprised if ESPN continues to let Rogers on air after making this wildly inappropriate allegation? And again, just just to, just to underline this point, and I, I don't want to sound preachy on this, but that this isn't funny. This is about child sex trafficking. You know, this isn't like a right. uh, this isn't like something silly to, to make light of. Yeah, and the fact that Aaron Rodgers immediately went there as a shot at Kimmel, I think really speaks to who Aaron Rodgers is as a person. Um, you know, I would have thought that ESPN would have said, hey, this has gone too far. We're going to get sued. Um, you know, no more Aaron Rodgers. But, you know, Pat McAfee in his apology today basically said, um, I can't wait to hear what Aaron has to say about it, which leads me to believe that he's going to be on again next week. So while things may have taken place behind the scenes, I really think it's important for ESPN to come out and say, look, this is without basis. It's not true. We apologize for having this on our airwaves. Um, ESPN's refusal to do that, frankly, is what has surprised me, because if I were ESPN, I would not want this associated with my brand. Yeah, I guess now Bob Iger uh, has, a, has a, a question. Does he allow mm -hmm. ESPN and this nitwit continue to, I'm not talking about McAfee, uh, to continue to like have this forum, uh, even when they're smearing somebody who has been working for ABC for, I think more than 20 years now, Jim, uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, and I really, yeah, and I really think that, you know, this may have crossed the line. I mean, if I were ESPN, the very least I would do is say he, say he can be on the show, but he's got to stick to football. 
he can't go off on, you know, wanting to debate Fauci and calling him all kinds of names and, you know, going after Jimmy Kimmel, going after Travis Kelsey, who's been the most, the NFL player most in the spotlight this year. And it's pretty obvious that, you know, Aaron Rodgers seems jealous that someone else is getting all the glory in a year he thought he was going to do it. It really turned into just an Aaron of Aaron, Robin, uh, Aaron Rodgers' grievances on a weekly basis. And someone's got to step in and do something. Yeah. I don't know if Rogers thinks this makes him look good. I think it makes him look pathetic. Julie Carroll, thank you so much. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Reminder, coming up tomorrow night on CNN, back-to-back Republican presidential town halls. First with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That's going to be moderated by CNN's Caitlin Collins, followed by a conversation with Ambassador Nikki Haley. That will be moderated by CNN's Aaron Burnett. The night kicks off 9 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night only here on CNN. And then one week from today, I'm going to moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate in Iowa with my colleague Dana Bash. And you can look for that in one week at 9 p.m. on January 10th. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, on the TikTok even. You can follow the show on X at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcast. All two hours sitting there like a big, delicious cheeseburger. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.